Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I don't know why you're so offended by the idea of bathtub gin, Gavin. It all tastes like something you rub on feet. Ass. The following podcast contains... You cannot say filth, flying, filth, flying, filth in front of people. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you decided to ban alcohol without actually, you know, banning alcohol, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 328, No Bourbon, No Scotch, and No Beer edition of the show. It's part two of Just Say No, America, where we talk about the great failed experiment that was Prohibition. Stay tuned. What the hell are you thinking podcast is brought to you by Fast Eddie's Bathtub Gin, the gin that tastes like it was made in a bathtub because it was. Who doesn't love small batch artisanal liquors and Fast Eddie's Bathtub Gin is as artisanal as it gets. It's brewed in the staff trailer on a used car lot in Queens. This small batch gin has unique flavors of curry from the Indian takeout place next door, subtle undertones of high octane unleaded, and a heavy redolent whiff of feet from the men who soak their feet in the tub after a long day on the lot. Our gin is brewed using the finest off-the-shelf botanicals from the nearby Seatown Food Market and whatever bottom-shelf vodka fell off the truck this week. Don't worry, we tested on neighborhood drunks to make sure you won't go blind. That's the Fast Eddie's guarantee. Fast Eddie's bathtub gin, it's not great gin, but at least we don't pay taxes on it. As it turned out, from the very beginning, Prohibition had meant nothing but trouble. It heralded an era of gangsterism that shocked the nation with its blatant violence. Rival gangs fought each other for control of illegal beer and booze. Day after day, newspaper headlines screamed out the news of the bloody gang wars. In New York and Chicago, a murder a day was attributed to the racketeers. The federal government battled a nation of lawbreakers. The law of the land said it was illegal to drink, but very few heeded the law. Whenever illegal hoocher beer was discovered by the feds, it met the same fate. Crack open the kegs and let the contents flow down the drain. No accurate count was ever kept on the exact amount of alcohol drained away in this manner, but it was considerable. I ain't trying to brag here, but uh, I come from a long line of moonshiners. You and your mom are hillbillies. Okay, more correctly, one of my grandparents made moonshine for a little while, but I like to think that he used some sort of secret family recipe that kept the Hicks fed for generations. And to be sure, my grandpa wasn't running shine back in the days of Prohibition. He was doing it in the 1950s because he needed money to feed his growing family. 
Now, I guess he could have upped his pullout game and saved a ton of money, but that would have meant my not having an aunt who taught me to love reading and an uncle who taught me to love drinking. That my maternal grandfather was a bootlegger was all very sorted to my dad's parents, who were good, honest town folk and not so quietly considered the Hicks side of the family nothing but white trash, plain and simple. Which was not inaccurate, but it was also totally unfair. And look, it's not like my dad's side of the family were living in a penthouse on Park Avenue, because where they did live was in a shithole backwater town along a railroad line that didn't stop in town anymore. Just because my mom's folks lived in a tar paper shack with a tin roof and a holler didn't make them bad people. And moonshining was doing nothing more than providing a cheaper product to the market. They weren't white trash, they were capitalist. Sorry, I always... Felt like I belonged more to my mom's side of the family than I did to my dad's. What I'm trying to say is that the manufacturing distribution of illegal alcohol is an American tradition going back to the founding days of the nations and practiced by good, decent people who sometimes had to break the law to keep their family fed. And if the revenue man ever came up in them hollers looking for my papaw still, well, sometimes he didn't come back and that was just the way it was. Y'all know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Okay, that never happened either, as far as I know. In fact, my grandpa only bootlegged for a couple of years and never came to the attention of the law, or no one really gave a shit one way or another, except his new in-laws, of course, because that's how common bootlegging was well up into the 1970s. Of course, the heyday of the bootlegger was prohibition. Everyone knows that. But this week in part two of Just Say No America, we're not talking about hillbillies running shine in the hollers or rum runners offloading whiskey on the beach, or even the gangsters who made Prohibition so lucrative and so very fun. Who else is left? Oh, come on. You've heard this podcast before. If this is your first time listening, hi, thanks for tuning in. Everything will be made clear shortly. But for the rest of you, you should know the answer to this question already. But if you need a little help, here. Who, rich people? White people. Exactly. Before we get to that, I guess I should go back and briefly cover how we got the 18th Amendment. Fucking white people! Yeah, that sums it up pretty nicely, but I'll go into a little more detail. If you had tuned in last week, and if you didn't, why the hell not? If you had tuned in, you would know that by the mid-1800s, white people, particularly white women and Protestant preachers, were very worried about all the drinking in America and all these immigrants and free black folks drinking more than anything else. So the temperance movements kicked into full gear, working on their dream, a national prohibition on alcohol. We talked about the Women's Christian Temperance Union last week, an older organization with deep ties to the suffrage movement and the abolition of slavery. But in 1893, a new group was founded with a singular, uncluttered vision. Knock off the booze. No booze. The Anti-Saloon League. According to Wikipedia, quote, the Anti-Saloon League was founded in 1893 in Oberlin, Ohio, and was an organization of the temperance movement that lobbied for the prohibition in the United States in the early 20th century. It was a key component of the progressive era, drawing heavy support from pietistic Protestant ministers in their congregations, especially Methodist, Baptist, disciples, disciples, and Congregationalists. It concentrated on legislation and cared about how legislators voted, not whether they drank or not. Founded as a state society in Oberlin, Ohio, its influence spread rapidly. In 1895, it became a national organization and quickly rose to become the most powerful prohibition lobby in America, overshadowing the older Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Prohibition Party. Its triumph was its nationwide prohibition locked into the Constitution with the passage of the 18th Amendment in 1920, 
unquote. Boy, that sounds real fun. Oh, trust me, they were a blast at the Wednesday prayer circle. The Anti-Saloon League was a fairly generic local temperance group with Swayo in Iowa, but no real national reach until... Wayne Wheeler came along. From Smithsonian Magazine, quote, Born on a farm near Youngstown, Ohio in 1869, he was effectively born anew in 1893 when he found himself in a congregational church in Oberlin, Iowa, listening to a temperance lecture delivered by Reverend Howard Hyde Russell, a former lawyer who had recently founded an organization called the Anti-Saloon League. After joining Russell in prayer, he, Wheeler, signed on as one of the first full-time employees of the ASL, which he would turn into the most effective political pressure group the country had yet known. It was, in fact, Wheeler who coined the term pressure group when he teamed up with Russell in 1893. The temperance movement that had begun to manifest itself in the 1820s had hundreds and thousands of adherents, but diffuse and ineffectual leadership. The most visible anti-alcohol leaders, Francis Willard of the WCTU, had diluted her organization's message by embracing a score of other issues, ranging from government ownership of utilities to vegetarianism. The nascent Prohibition Party had added forest conservation and a post office policy to its anti-liquor platform, but Russell, with Wheeler by his side, declared the Anti-Saloon League interested in only one thing, the abolition of alcohol from American life, unquote. Wheeler's secret was focusing the ASL and eventually the other temperance organizations in a narrow, motivated group concentrating on the single issue of prohibition. It's a tactic countless others have tried to emulate through the years, and almost everyone has failed. The anti-abortion movement is perhaps closest of anyone to Wheeler. And after 40-plus years of Wheelerism, which is the word for this kind of activism... They are today exceedingly close to abortion going the way of ice-cold beer in 1920. Wheeler established the playbook for a social movement by generating local and state support for prohibition in the rural and conservative areas and using the Constitution to benefit his cause. Sounds familiar. It should because the anti-abortion forces are running it now. Then Wheeler decreed it didn't matter what an individual politician did, whether he drank or not. It only mattered that you could sway that politician to vote for prohibition when the time came. It was nonpartisan, totally ruthless, and it worked. If the left had this kind of ruthless efficiency, the world would be a better place. Wheeler also instituted a public affairs wing of the ASL, a publication company called the American Issue Publication that printed exactly what the ASL wanted and distributed via churches and temperance unions across the country, kind of like an early Fox News. From Wikipedia, quote, The league used a multi-tiered approach in its attempts to secure a dry nation through national legislation and congressional hearings, along with the Scientific Temperance Federation and its American Issue Publishing Company. The league also used a motion based on patriotism, efficiency, and anti-German sentiment in World War I. The activists saw themselves as preachers fulfilling a religious duty of eliminating liquor in America as it tried to mobilize public opinion in favor of a dry, saloonless nation. The League invented many of the modern techniques of public relations, unquote. And they were ridiculously successful. They proposed, lobbied for, and passed the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution, reading simply, quote, 
After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacturer's sale or transportation of intoxicating liquors within, the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. The Congress and the several states shall have the concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. This article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislatures of the several states as provided in the Constitution within seven years from the date of submission hereof to the states by the Congress, unquote. It was proposed December 18th, 1917 and ratified January 16th, 1919 when Nebraska became the 36th state to ratify the amendment. And as of January 17th, 1920, buying, selling, and transporting alcohol in the United States became illegal. Did you notice that drinking said alcohol was not illegal? And through that oil tanker-sized loophole, the entire great experiment of prohibition completely failed before it even began. Oops. The subsequent Volstead Act was the framework by which prohibition would be enforced. It essentially codified the 18th and laid out the restrictions and allowances for what was illegal and for what was legal. And it did something even the dries, the supporters of prohibition, didn't expect. It banned wine and beer. Where's the beer? No more beer. From Wikipedia, quote, the phrase intoxicating liquor would not logically have included beer and wine as they are not distilled, and their inclusion in the prohibition came as a surprise to the general public as well as the wine and beer makers. This controversy caused many northern states to not abide by the amendment, which caused some problems, unquote. Volstead created an ill-defined, poorly funded framework for prohibition. It left open huge carve-outs for the production of industrial alcohol, you know, for... For science! It specifically did not keep Americans from buying up as much booze as they could lay their hands on and stockpiling it for the dry years to come. But of course, the only people who could afford to do that were the wealthy. It specifically exempted medicinal uses of alcohol, meaning a doctor could write you a prescription for booze. Winston Churchill visited the States during Prohibition and specifically had his doctor write him a prescription for his liquor cabinet. It also failed to include any sort of provisions for people brewing beer and wine pressing at home for their personal use, leading to the rise of companies selling concentrated blocks of dehydrated grapes and yeast and sugar with the explicit instructions not to do the exact thing that would make the product into wine because that would be illegal right there on the package. It sold extremely well. None of this impacted the wealthiest Americans. Crazy! I'm, I'm shocked! Shocked! The Gilded Age families personally regarded prohibition as an inconvenience at the worst or something primarily that it was the problem of the lessers. With their wealth and influence, the rules that applied to the common man simply did not concern them. They bought up stocks of wine and liquor and then paid more for bootleg booze as those stocks dwindled or just because they could, you know? Prohibition was always about the poor and keeping control of the working class. It was just couched in philanthropic bullshit. From an article off the least.net titled Prohibition as Class Warfare says, quote, if you were among the well-heeled, there was a pretty significant loophole right out the gate. One of the provisions of the act was that Americans could consume alcoholic beverage that they had purchased for personal consumption prior to prohibition going into effect. The act didn't go into effect until January of 1920. In his book, Last Call, the author David Okrant 
tells the stories of what happened in the interim. Charlotte Hennessy, a silent film actress and mother of the more celebrated actress Mary Pickford, bought the entire inventory of a liquor store and had it transferred to her basement. In Arizona, department store magnate Baron M. Goldwater, the father of Barry Goldwater, bought the bar and brass rail from his favorite saloon and installed it in his basement where his son made beer. While at the same time, an unprecedented campaign of selective enforcement lurked beneath the surface glamour of the Roaring Twenties that left the urbane elite sipping cocktails in swank-protected nightclubs, while Mexicans, the poor European immigrants, African Americans, poor whites in the South, and the unlucky experienced the full brunt of prohibition enforcements with deadly reality, unquote. You've probably heard about people going blind from drinking bathtub gin. It's a favorite trope that had its origin in the tutting of the dries over the poor, ignorant drunkards whose inability to control themselves led to such a fate. Oh, those poor, doomed bastards. Well, the reality is just a little different because they were poisoned by the United States government. A Slate Magazine article tells the tale, quote, Frustrated that people continued to consume so much alcohol even after it was banned, federal officials had decided to try a different kind of enforcement. They ordered the poisoning of industrial alcohols manufactured in the United States, products regularly stolen by bootleggers and resold as drinkable spirits. The idea was to scare people into give up illicit drinking. Instead, by the time Prohibition ended in 1933, the federal poisoning program, by some estimates, had killed at least 10,000 people, unquote. By the beginning of the 1920s, the U.S. government had mandated that all industrial alcohol be denatured, meaning chemicals to make it undrinkable be added to prevent it being used for human consumption. And again from Slate, quote, By mid-1927, the new denaturing formulas included some notable poisons. Kerosene, brucine, a plant alkaloid closely related to strychnine, gasoline, benzene, cadmium, iodine, zinc, mercury salts, nicotine, ether, formaldehyde, chloroform, camphor, carbolic acid, quinine, and acetone. The Treasury Department also demanded more methyl alcohol be added, up to 10% of the total product. It was the last that proved the most deadly, unquote. When the liquor was inevitably sold to the bootleggers, and make no mistake, most of it was sold to and not stolen by bootleggers, and sold to the public after being redistilled to cut the taste of the chemicals, it was still highly poisonous. Various public health warnings were issued about the deadly booze, but the denaturing program continued until the repeal of Prohibition. The deaths were almost exclusively among the poor and working class. Now, the business magnates of the era supported prohibition, not out of a sense of public good, but because it offered yet another means of social control of their workers. Henry Ford was a strong proponent of prohibition because he felt and openly said it would increase productivity and his profits. Oh, and, and you know, the Jews. Henry could find a way to always bring it back to the Jews. He famously hates Jews. In this case, Ford opined repeatedly that the Jews were behind the black market liquor trade in Detroit. And Ford was hardly alone in the support for prohibition for pure profit motives. And although Henry was probably a bit more open about it, his opinions of the Jews. A writer by the name of Bruce Webb wrote on AngryBear.com in 2015, quote, Prohibition was all about maintaining maximum productivity on the factory floor by effectively denying open access for working men. Prohibition largely worked for the actual purpose for which the wealthy and powerful allowed it to be put in place. 
As an indication of the soundness of his, this theory, consider that in reading about the business and social affairs of the American elite in the 1920s, there's not a single hint that alcohol use was restricted or repressed. No, instead, this was the golden age of cocktails. Nor were there any evidence of an upsurge in piety among that group, but there was, and always will be, a class interest in boosting labor productivity and grabbing the spoils. I suggest that was what, in part, made the Roaring Twenties what they were, a program of prohibition that largely left the elites unaffected while clamping down on at least daytime consumption by the working class, unquote. Now, for the middle class, there was the problem of the great unwashed mass of immigrants voting. And much of their political power was based in them gathering socially in places where they discussed politics. Do you want to know where those places were? Um, that's a bar. From Wine Enthusiast magazines of all places, quote, Saloons became places where immigrants could learn how to participate in the political process, how to vote who would support their interests as immigrants and, and workers, that poor and working-class Americans could bond over politics threatened some people. It looks menacing to not just the super-upper-class, not just the millionaires, but the well-to-do bourgeois, the upper-middle-class population. They look at politics, and they see saloon keepers running things, and they see immigrants outvoting them. They know that as long as it's just a numbers game, there are more working-class people in the country than there are well-off people in the country that they're going to lose. So they start to set the saloon up, unquote. And then, of course, there was the racial elements. Would it shock you to know that the KKK, the old Ku Klux Klan, was a huge ally of the Prohibition movement? It would not. More from wine enthusiast, quote, the ASL maintained close ties with the KKK to push its agenda in southern states. I would not say that every anti-saloon leaguer is a Ku Kluxer, but every Ku Kluxer is an anti-salooner, said Clarence Darrow, the 20th century lawyer known for the Scopes Monkey Trial to a Baltimore Evening Sun reporter in 1924. Why would the KKK be anti-saloon? Following Reconstruction, some white Southerners vehemently opposed the growing black middle class who owned their own entertainment spaces. In 1906, fueled by baseless news reports of black men attacking white women, the Atlanta race riots began. Over several days, angry white mobs descended on the city and killed more than 20 black Georgians. Hundreds more were injured, and many black-owned businesses were destroyed, which included saloons said to be the root cause of these unconfirmed attacks. To me, that's a real turning point of prohibition. After that, Georgia became much more open to the ideas of prohibition, which wasn't an idea that had a lot of legs in the South until the Atlanta race riots. That's when you start to see the dominoes fall of states switching over to going dry in the Southern United States, unquote. Once you peel away the religious piety, the social do-gooderism, and the scientific opinions, the overall bullshit of prohibition, you're left with the actual argument of dry supporters. Money and power. The political movement that created national prohibition was utterly and completely about exerting control over immigrants, minorities, and the poor, and limiting labor organizing. It was keeping people in their place so the middle and upper class whites of the United States would continue their political and economic hegemony. And it opened the door for a lot of new money to be made by the rising middle class that would subsequently elevate them to the upper class through the money made from illegal liquor. Most of them Irish. <coughs> Kennedy. 
The great experiment was wholly conceived and implemented not to help poor drunk America, but to control poor drunk America. And it promptly blew the fuck up in their faces because no one ever considered that the very populations they sought to control would simply ignore the laws they passed. That the ignorant, unwashed, working class masses would simply say, Fuck that. Hell yeah. And immediately exploit these ill-conceived laws for their own benefit, was unthinkable. It was the moment that a generation of immigrants truly became American. Prohibition was, of course, an utter failure. By the time it was repealed in 1933, it had been hollowed out and unenforced so much that the legalization of booze was largely a formality. The lesson of prohibition should have been that you cannot eliminate vice by forbidding it. People are going to do what they're going to do. But this is America, so naturally that isn't what we learned. Instead, the lesson we learned out of Prohibition was that if you're going to use the law to keep certain groups of people under control, you got to make sure to use that law to lock people away in prison for a long time. And that's where we'll pick up next week for part three of Just Say No America. This is our brain on drugs. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, nah, everything's peachy. Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of the uh, Air Force One. Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. 510 declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 3-1 left. We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. That is it for our show this week. You can probably see where we're going with this little arc of history. Next week, we're going to look into Prohibition Part 2, Psychedelic Boogaloo, when we talk about the war on drugs. Now, we covered a lot of that in episode 286, One Toke Over the State Line, Sweet Jesus, but that was about legalization. Next week, we're going to be talking about how white people use the exact, exact same tactics on drugs for exactly the same reasons, only more effectively. We're going to rerun 286 Midweek to remind you how that worked. Then we'll jump right ahead to the 1980s and how Just Say No taught a generation that Mr. T and Nancy Reagan were probably fucking. Speaking of other improbable events, rate and review this show so that others can find it and find our evidence that Mr. T and Nancy Reagan joint convincing by comparison of your five-star review. Follow my salacious rumors about Laura Bush and Shaggy on the Soch at the Hell underscore podcast and the show name on Facebook. And all of my base allegations about Melania, Trump, and Kanye are recorded for posterity at whatthehellpodcast.com. You can kick us a buck on patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast to hear ad-free and early's this one rumor I heard about Dick Nixon and Sammy Davis Jr. So, for me, Dave... I ain't seen my baby since I don't know when Bledsoe. Producer, going to get high, man. Man, I'm going to get loose. 
Need me a triple shot of that juice. Gavin and all the fictional bootleggers on this show, we want to say no bourbon, no scotch, and no beer. Make Dave a very cranky boy. And we'll see you all next week. I want one bourbon, one scotch, one beer. I ain't seen my baby, I don't know when. But drinking bourbon, whiskey, scotch, and gin. Oh yeah, I'm in the moment, get loose. Give me a triple shot of that juice. Oh yeah, drunk, and to make it clear. I want one bourbon, scotch, one beer, one bourbon. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com or on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast or on Facebook as what the hell podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. <laughs> <laughs>